Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching the analysis.news. Asal Raj, a historian as well as the author of a recent book, State of Resistance, will be joining me today to speak about national identity formations in Iran. But then also in a lot of cases, like I said, I, just, I didn't say I was doing an interview. You know, I would just go to like a store. I wanted to buy, you know, a CD that would have like, what's the, if you, there was like a dance party and you wanted to give somebody a CD of all like the best songs right now, like, what is that? You chat up the person who's who's going to sell you what is, by the way, not an official CD, right? It's like an underground CD right. because it's not officially allowed to be sold. If you enjoy this content and would like to contribute to the show, please go to our website, theanalysis.news, and make a donation by hitting the button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get on our mailing list. That way you're notified whenever a new episode drops. And you can also like and subscribe all of the videos on our YouTube channel at theanalysis-news. See you in a bit with Asal. Joining me now to speak about Iranian national identity is Asal Rod. She's a historian and author of the new book, State of Resistance. Thanks so much for coming back onto the show, Asal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, your book is a really fascinating excursion into Iranian national identity, and it sort of juxtaposes different identity formations, such as top-down formations uh, led by the former Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and the Islamic Republic, and sort of sets that up against different sort of bottom-up formations and ways in which Iranians contest these limited um, notions of identity. So before we get into the details, I wanted to ask you why you wrote this book in the first place. Well, it's it was a very personal project, if I'm being honest, right? As a, an Iranian-American, as someone who was born and raised in the United States, but to parents of Iranian immigrants, you know, my own sort of navigating that hyphenated identity made me really interested in the notion of belonging and identity. Because when you grow up, um, I, I think especially within that generation where there's a lot of sort of anti-Iran sentiment in the United States, that creates a sense of alienation, you want to always have this sort of idea of belonging. And then I traveled to Iran as an adult, thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to this place that now I'm going to get that sense of belonging for sure, because this is this is really where my core identity comes from. And I traveled there and I realized that that's just not the case. And it's not that it wasn't wonderful for many reasons, visiting your family, being with people who understand certain aspects of your culture that might not be understood in the, the state that you live in. But my idea of Iranianness was so distinct from theirs. It was so far removed. And what I had expected when I visited there, because I had grown up in this like bubble of uh, not only my own Iranian household, but the community that we had built here, that's really what I expected. And it was a very, very different situation. So I just sort of became very interested in understanding that more and understanding Iran more. Um, and it also made me realize if I, as someone of Iranian heritage in the United States, didn't really understand the complexity of the population and the culture and the politics of that country, then how can I expect, you know, sort of, sort of average American, a non, uh, an American of non-Iranian heritage to understand? And so I became really fascinated with trying to understand those things. Um, as someone who decided to study history, it's also, you know, there's that sort of ubiquitous phrase, history is written by the victors, mm -hmm. you know, so you, you understand the importance and the power of narrative, like how important the story is and people believing that story. It's almost the story and whether or not people believe it is more important than the reality on the ground, right? You can 
historians can come like uh, people in religious studies and, and historians of religion do this all the time. They're like, oh, you know, like such and such story that's in this uh, religious text is, you know, disproven by this information. It doesn't, it doesn't matter oftentimes to the believers, right? So it, all of that I found really fascinating and I wanted to, as much as possible, try and understand how those narratives played into contemporary Iran. And so I tried to trace that back to how having a national narrative and a sort of condition of nationalism was tied to the idea of the modern nation state. Like in order to have a modern nation state, yeah, you had to have the the trappings of a modern nation state in terms of you know, a modern infrastructure, an organized military, a bureaucratic state, all of those types of things. But the story was so important too, that people understood how they belonged to this, um, as Benedict Anderson has put it, imagined community. And that was such an integral part of that project. And you could see that unfolding under uh, both the Pahlavi dynasty and then continuing under the Islamic Republic. These historians like Benedict Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, they play a really important role in how you made sense of identity making and identity formation. And I think uh, the Haitian anthropologist Trio also plays a big sort of, you know, theoretical role in terms of looking at how certain narratives are silenced over time and which narratives, which contested narratives actually sort of have supremacy or are more recognized as being valid or authentic over other ones. And I think in your book, by reading it, it seemed like you weren't trying to argue that any one identity is actually more authentic than the other. So if you have all these different identities, which one do you then choose? Or is it all relative? I think there's definitely the idea of it being relative. And yeah, I would never want to, I think anybody who tries to choose a sort of definitive or authentic identity is doing a disservice to understanding the whole point, right? The point of it is there's, uh, in, in scholarship at least, there's this idea that, you know, the nation state is a construct, race is a construct, gender is a construct. And sometimes to to the non-academic, that's a meaningless statement. It's like, well, what do you mean like, that there's social constructs? What it means is basically that they can change their dynamic and whoever um, both someone who's wielding power at the top, right? A state can try and wield that narrative and people can do the same thing, right? People, it, there's a negotiation that goes back and forth. It's nobody has the power to sort of control that narrative because it's so dynamic and fluid and it can change over time. But then what happens is if you take that argument to an extreme, the idea that it's a construct, you see sometimes in scholarship the idea that then it's inauthentic, then it's not real, right? It's fake or it's made up. And I think that also does a disservice because the reality of it is once you as an individual psychologically attach yourself to an identity, it's very real. It's a very real experience and it has very real consequences, right? You can say that borders are made up and they are, right? If you look at a picture of the earth, there are no borders on it. Like we've created those borders. But the experience of existing in those borders is very real. The inability to move across those borders is very real. So I wanted to sort of, um, you know, be on that fence of understanding both sides of the argument that it's constructed in the case of, say, Iran, where I'm looking at national identity. Those national identities are constructed both from above and from below but it's still a certain set of characteristics and symbols that they can choose from, right? Like an Iranian identity is not, it's going to take different symbols that are part of its 
very long and rich historical um, cultural uh, history. So that was really what I wanted to get at, that it's not, yes, it is imagined and yes, it is constructed, but it's still very real and it has very real consequences for those who are experiencing it. Yeah, and you were looking at um, the the former Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and how he would use certain, um, you know, cultural or historic symbols from Iran's pre-Islamic age, so to speak. So, like he he kept referring to the three thousand year history of Iran and and how, how it was this Aryan civilization. So, trying to sanitize um, Iranian history from Islam, basically. Whereas I guess after the revolution, there was a resistance to that and the sort of opposite identity formation was taking place, but in the same manner. Yeah. So, I mean, so one thing to be clear about, um, the Shah is that while the, the sort of cultural pillar that he tried to use in terms of the national narrative was tied to monarchy, because remember when he's, when he's asked, you know, what, what ties the nation together? he literally responds with himself, the monarchy, the monarch, the king as like the father of the nation. So in seeing that identity for himself, he tied the identity of the nation state to this history of monarchy. And that predates obviously Islam, mm -hmm. but he was also very much a Muslim himself, right? Like I want to make sure because there's a, you know, especially with the recent protest, the uh, anti uh, compulsory hijab protest that we saw in Iran. Um, although those protests obviously went beyond the, the, the concept of the hijab, but the idea that there is this compulsory hijab in Iran, a lot of people brought up the fact that, oh, the former Shah outlawed the veil. Um, and the reality of it is that was his father, right? Reza Shah uh, outlawed the Shador in the 1930s when he tried to really enforce this idea of Westernization. But his son, who would become the last Shah, didn't enforce those kind of like restrictions on whether or not women could wear the veil. You could say culturally, there was that those groups may have felt more alienated because sort of westernization and westerners were were set higher in terms of like something to aspire to but but he wasn't anti-islam right that's not the the point of it it's more that that's the cultural factor that he tried to bring into his national narrative and i bring up two other sort of elements to this, these three elements that make up his nationalism. And it's also the concept of revolution, ironically, and um, the concept of independence, right? And you see those same threads go into the revolution itself by 1979, right? Revolutionaries are um, using the idea that Iran is not an independent state, not a fully independent state, that, you know, going back to the coup of 1953, um, going back to the idea that they see some of this tendencies, you know, the appetite towards Westernization that the Shah had as being sort of alien to a lot of the indigenous culture within Iran. Um, and, and obviously they are revolutionaries, but he's using this discourse in a, in a historical context where you have a lot of anti-colonial uh, national independence movements around the world. Mm -hmm. And so you see that kind of, uh, rhetoric everywhere around, and he's trying to tap into that. And so you see that in the White Revolution of the 1960s, right? He has an entire book called The White Revolution. So he's using revolutionary discourse, he's using the discourse of independence, and he's infusing cultural symbols that predate Islam um, and go back to 
the Iranian monarchy as far back as the Achaemenid um, monarchy, right? That of like Cyrus the Great and really directly tying his own dynasty to that era. Um, Iranian revolutionaries then use Islam as a counterpoint in, in a certain way, right? It's someone like Ali Shariati, whose discourse becomes very popular, uh, especially in like the 1970s, when he is saying we need to go back to um, our indigenous roots. Now, who is he getting influenced by? It's a figure like Fanon, right? Like this is this is quintessential anti-colonial uh, resistance. But whereas Fanon is saying we sort of have to leave the history behind and forge new identities, Shariati is saying no, we have to you we have to reclaim our sort of indigenous identities and take pride in those identities rather than trying to emulate the West. And that's a sentiment that you see in other thinkers at the time. Someone like Ola Ahmad, who writes um, his sort of classic West toxification, right? The idea that this obsession with the West, wanting to emulate the West is almost like a malady um, that exists within Iran and within maybe the greater region, arguably. So those are the, those are the, the his, that's the historical context in which the Shah is creating this narrative. Right. I mean, you do see the Shah's obsession with the West and that's probably what or played was one of the, the factors in, in leading to his downfall and leading to the Iranian revolution is his constant reference to, you know, the West being more modern and that Iran is because of its history, also a, a modern civilization. They just needed to emulate the West uh, to sort of drag themselves out of um, the impoverishment that had been wrought on them by imperialists. Not that Iran was ever colonized, but its resources were colonized. So I think in the seventies, he had more of an anti-imperialist, rhetoric when speaking about the oil crisis, for example. Um, right. I mean, he did. He, he's, uh, there are interviews in which, you know, he's especially with the British, right? Because the British, um, you know, up until 1953, Iranians tend to have a very positive view of the United States and their um, negative view vis-a-vis -vis, like colonial powers or foreign powers trying to exert control over Iran is really against Imperial Russia and um, the British Empire, right? Because in the great game, these are the powers that are trying to influence um, and really control resources and even land in Iran. It's not until it's after 1953 that Iranians start to have a, a negative um, view of Iranian uh, of Americans because that's when Americans start to sort of impose their will as well. But he has these interviews in the 1970s where he is very much talking about um, a sort of confrontation with like the attempt of British control over Iranian resources. Well, you mentioned Ali Shariati, and he was an Islamic Iranian thinker. And I'm, I'm wondering how you think he would have influenced modern Iranian identity, because he did say that Islam was the greatest victim of colonialism. And I wonder if that idea of being a victim plays into this plays into this, the Islamic Republic's idea of itself as being the underdog, as having to stand up for you know, revolutionary struggles around the world, stand up for Palestine, whether they actually do so or not is, of course, a different story. But did Shariati, did his, I'm not trying to equate Shariati with the Islamic Republic or with Khomeini, but do you think some of his views imbued the identity of the state which came after the revolution? Well, what I think the state does, the Islamic Republic does, is it really appropriates that language from revolutionaries, right? And, and Shariati is someone who's influencing that discourse very much so. Um, I mean, you, you point to something that's really important, and it's actually uh, Hamid Daboshi in his book on Shiism writes about this. He says, and I, I thought this was so fascinating in it, 
it's basically this idea that um, Imam Hussein in the Battle of Karbala in the seventh century, when he's martyred with his 72 companions, he is victorious in his defeat, right? It's the fact that he's fighting against tyranny and dies fighting for justice that makes him this heroic figure. And what happens is if you become, what happens with the Islamic Republic especially is when you become the person in power, when you become the power, you're now, you know, you're the flip side of that. You become the symbol of injustice, right? And you very much see that with the Islamic Republic. Like it, it, the reason it appropriates that language is it because it tries to maintain this image that it is a continuously revolutionary state. And as such, it is supporting resistance movements worldwide. And you mentioned um, the Palestinian cause is one cause, right? The, you see um, leader, uh, Iran Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei talking about figures like Malcolm X or mentions of things like BLM. Um, why? Because they're trying to take this facade of like the, the you know, they're like the modern day Imam Husseins, right? They are fighting injustice, um, all while trying to divert from the fact that they are carrying out their own injustices and they're actually the ones in power. So it, that language is very much, I think, taken up by the Islamic Republic. And there's this attempt to pretend like they're the guardians of Imam Hussein. But why, you know, why tap into that kind of imagery? I mean, arguably one of the reasons is because it's so powerful. It's really powerful imagery. Like, Shiite motifs and symbols lend themselves um, very easily to sort of resistance, whether it's uh, through stories that were told to, to galvanize Iranian troops after Iran was invaded in 1980 against the, um, by Saddam Hussein, um, or whether it was the revolutionary cause itself, because that's the story, you know, that's the story of the martyrdom of Karbala. And this isn't unique to Shiites, right? This kind of story, this kind of lore is ubiquitous in other cultures. It's the David and Goliath story. It's the battle of Thermopylae and 300 Spartans against, in this case, thousands of Persians, right? So you see this kind of a story because the, the images are so powerful. So they really tap into that. Um, revolutionaries tap into that imagery. And then later the Islamic Republic appropriates that and tries to use it um, as one of the ways to uh, rally to get that rally around the flag effect uh, in order to fight back against um, the Iraqi invasion of Iran in 1980. Uh, of course, that's also infused with a lot of nationalist rhetoric, right? It's not just these symbols. It's not just Shiism, but it's Iranian Shiism. You're not, you're not just defending the religion, you're defending the land. And that's very much the sentiment that so many of the people who fought in that war had. It was a very, very nationalist cause because it was defined by these two nation states that were fighting each other. So even though Iraq had a large Shia population and Iran, although did not have a large, but still had, especially um, in the Southwest where Iraq originally uh, initially invaded uh, an Arab, an ethnic Arab population, right? But neither fought for the other side. Iraqi Shiites didn't, Shiites didn't fight for Iran and Arab Iranians didn't fight for Iraq, right? Because they were very much defined within these, within these national borders. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, Shariati, of course, dies in 77, so it's before the revolution even happens. Um, you would imagine that all of the revolutionaries who died uh, before or soon after the revolution would take issue with the, the way that the Islamic Republic has manifested because 
it really flies in its actual actions, not its rhetoric, but its actual actions fly in the face of that, um, of A, why Iranians had a revolution, right? They had a revolution to, um, to dismantle tyranny, not to replace it with another one. Um, and also that it was based on this idea of sort of like justice and so many injustices are carried out in its name right now. Well, Iran is an incredibly diverse place. I mean, Farsi isn't the only language that is spoken there. I think many different language, languages are spoken. And the Shah did embark on this nation building project in which he made Farsi the official language of the country. And you could argue that that erased a lot of the, the cultural diversity. Would you say that the Islamic Republic's equating Iranianness with is like Islamicism, essentially, another way of trying to potentially erase some of the cultural and religious diversity? And, you know, I'm also asking this question, given that my mom's side of the family is uh, Baha'i, so they're a religious minority from Iran. They had to escape Iran and, and, and go to Canada during the revolution, unfortunately. And so I'm asking this question from that position of knowing that there was, and there continues to be large scale persecution against certain minorities in Iran. Absolutely. And I mean, you, you bring up one of the most important um, examples of that kind of silencing, right? So by taking on, and I mean, that's one of the things that Trio is talking about, right? By inherently when you elevate one narrative, you're silencing others. And both states, uh, both the monarchy and the Islamic Republic participate in that kind of erasure, right? Um, if you, so the, it was actually the father Reza Shah who establishes uh, Farsi as the, as, the, as the official language. And it's not unique, right? That, that's part of a nation state project. Mm. In order to bring people under this uh, umbrella of the nation, when you have so much ethnic, language, religious diversity, there has to be something that sort of formalizes that. And it's formalized through, for instance, secondary education, right? Then the United States is a country that has lots of different uh, ethnicities and languages and minorities, but we tend to have like a formalized system where everybody learns or everybody is educated at least. Um, now we see a lot more dual language programs, but still English is like the dominant language in which everybody is educated in. So something that's interesting about that on the language front, by the way, just to understand how new this actually was, is for instance, for me, my uh, maternal grandparents are Azadi Turks. And so my maternal grandparents, not this is not so many generations ago, this is two generations before me, spoke Persian with an accent. They spoke it with an Azadi accent, right? It was their second language. Their first language was Turkish. For my mother, Persian became her first language and she spoke Turkish with an accent, you know, so it reversed. But in terms of the minorities that you're speaking of, yeah, I mean, the Islamic Republic tries to present itself as um, uh, a country that is tolerant of like, or actually has religious freedom, right? Um, if you are... Uh, Christian, like there's a large Armenian uh, population in Iran. Uh, if you are Sunni, if you are Jewish, it, Iran is home, to, is the second largest Jewish population in the Middle East is actually in Iran. Um, Zoroastrians, these are all supposed to be protected uh, religions. Well, let's start with them. First of all, they're not really, right? They're treated differently. When you have like, anytime you have a country that identifies itself as a particular religion, I mean, it's, it's the Islamic Republic, 
you're automatically second class if you're anything else, because you're not part of the identifying feature of the state, right? But Baha'is specifically are persecuted. This isn't just you don't get the same treatment. This is you are basically not recognized. Um, it is difficult to get an education. It's difficult to own property, which is to the point that you just made, why many Baha'is have left Iran. Um, and in, Iran is the home of Baha'ism, right? It's a religion that emerges in Iran in the 19th century. So that group, unfortunately, has been persecuted from the very beginning, from the 19th century, in part because, um, you know, most they're, they're seen as heretics because obviously anything that comes before Islam is different. But when you have the seal of the prophet, anything that comes after Islam is considered heresy because Islam is the last religion. Muhammad is the last prophet. Last prophet. This is, so anything that comes afterwards is considered, in theory, heresy. And that's one of the reasons why Baha'is are targeted the way that they are. Also, of course, it, it threatens the when you have a new religion emerge and you have a clergy, a Shia clergy in Iran, that even in the 19th century have already become an autonomous body, who already wield a certain amount of power, maybe not political power at the time, but, you know, they have... They're large landowners, they have mosques, they have religious taxes that they collect, they have a significant following. Anything that might compete with that also creates uh, challenges to the power of the clergy. And so these are the reasons why uh, Baha'is are persecuted, unfortunately, from the very beginning, and it continues um, in a much harsher fashion under the Islamic Republic. Yeah, and there's a part of your book where you're talking about different symbols and military symbols. You're speaking about the Iran-Iraq war and the Basij, and there's this, uh, so the Basij being a, a paramilitary group which formed um, during the Iran-Iraq war. And then you were also speaking about the museum in Tehran, the the, the war museum. And there's yeah. a, a, a photo of, you know, different people who represented, uh, or sorry, different religious symbols and how they are representative of the different Iranians who engaged in this struggle. So again, emphasizing their Iranianness, even though they had, or they came from different religions and how they were all fighting together um, to face Saddam represented as Yazid in a way. But of course, Baha'is were not included in that. So that was significant. But I guess there was a time when it maybe wasn't as bad as today. And I think that might've been under um, President uh, Khatami in the early 2000s, where I think he was even talking about extending certain social rights to Baha'is at the time, whether that was implemented. I'm not I'm actually not sure about that. I mean, I, I, I don't specifically, I'm not specifically privy to uh, Khatami wanting to, you know, like sort of expand rights for Baha'is. But I will say it's, I find it believable, right? Like I, I don't know personally, and so I don't want to speak to it in that sense. But it, it would fit with sort of his gen, the general change that occurs with at least the, the rhetoric of someone like a figure like Khatami, right? Khatami, you know, he gets a lot of criticism for his failure to fundamentally change the system or to change the system really in, in, in any significant way. Um, but that's, but I think that also uh, misses the fact that he was very different than, than previous uh, leaders in the country and his vision of the country was quite different. And things did change under him in terms of at least um, you know, newspapers opening, artistic expression, uh, a sort of lowering of repression. And so there's this like ebb and flow uh, in Iran since the 1979 revolution, depending on who is um, the president and who has which sort of political faction has more power. 
Um, it's always a repressive state, right? It's always a re authoritarian state. I'm not saying that any of those things change, right. but the the atmosphere on the ground does change to a certain extent. And so what we've seen in the last five years or so is sort of this consistent trend towards more repression, right? Whether, and so that's why I'm saying this fits in, I think with that logic, whether it's, and you've seen that with the Baha'i community as well, that increased repression on the Baha'i, the in further persecution of the Baha'i community. We've seen it um, in terms of arrests and punishments of uh, human rights activists. Uh, you had someone like Nasrin Sutudeh, who I believe was, had been arrested uh, under the Ahmadinejad um, presidency, was released in 2013. And then again, I think it was in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in the last five year span that she was rearrested again, right? So in the last five years, you see crackdowns on labor movements, crackdowns on protests, um, crackdown on any voice of really dissent, and then uh, further repression, I think, of groups like Baha'is as well, unfortunately. So I think that all fits into that kind of trend. And it's just gotten worse under the Raisi administration who took over in 2021. One of the things that they tried to implement more uh, strictly was the hijab, right? And this is in part, of course, not again, the hijab law has always existed and women have always been stopped um, in order to have it enforced. The morality police, um, I should say the so-called morality police uh, predate, of course, the Raisi administration, but it is under this stricter enforcement that we see a young woman, Gina Masa Amini, killed by the so-called morality police. And that's the spark of the most recent sort of iteration of protests that we've seen in Iran. So that further repression is also getting, um, is not forcing Iranians to stay quiet. They continue to come to the streets, they continue to protest, and they continue to show um, different forms of resistance to whether it's the state as a whole or uh, particular policies within the state. Well, we will come back to the current iteration of Iranian identity or iterations. But I did want to ask you about the method you used in writing this book, because you're a historian. So typically, you know, historians will spend countless hours sitting in archives and just pouring through different documents. But you actually went to Iran multiple times and interviewed people. So your work almost comes across as being a bridge between, you know, a historical endeavor, as well as being very sociological and looking at culture. Um, so maybe you can talk about your first experiences going to Iran, when that was. I don't know if it was actually under President Khatami or, or if it was already in the Ahmadinejad period. Um, and also explain how you decided to interview certain people. Like, how did you pick those people? So um, one of the things is when I was doing my uh, graduate research, I had um, an anthropologist on my committee very intentionally because because I wanted to do field work. And to your point, yeah, I mean, if you're doing, I wanted it to be a history text, but I also wanted to have very contemporary elements to it. And so that's where I think the the interdisciplinary sort of approach comes across. And that's why I, I wanted to do interviews and use really contemporary sort of art. Like my archive is not the same dusty archive that we think of, you know, I'm like listening to um, contemporary music, films, television, um, and specifically in terms of interviews. So there's 
a couple of things that went into it. The most important part was accessibility, right? The, the ability to access people. And one of the things I tried to avoid when possible was the sort of formal interview process because I came to notice that once you, once you're discussing these topics, especially like identity and things like that in a very formal setting, it, the, the tone and the responses become much more politicized. Whereas in a lot of cases, I'm like, I'm not asking for your political identity. I'm just asking, you know, how do you identify Like, what do you, what does being Iranian mean to you? Um, and, and so in some cases, they were very formal, right? Like I went in with the idea of, um, I want to interview people, for instance, families of um, people who were either involved, who were soldiers in the Iran-Iraq war or families of people who were martyred in the war. So those were much more formal because I didn't have that access myself. Um, and then in other cases, I really started with like a small network. And I think it's called like the snowball method, right? Like I tried to expand from that network and it started with people that I knew, right? And then from there, I tried to get um, as many different perspectives as I could. But that's why in the book, I also sort of give a basic description of the person I'm talking to. Um, and a lot of the reasons why I have the, this, the, I don't use their names is because of the nature of the research, the fact that it's very contemporary and it could be very contentious. And in an authoritarian state like Iran, it's also that's the other layer of it, right? Accessibility in terms of people you can get to and in terms of people who are willing to talk to you. Like there becomes an unwillingness for a lot of people to speak because you're in an environment that might feel like it's dangerous. So uh, assuring that anonymity is is very important. But then also in a lot of cases, like I said, I just I didn't say I was doing an interview. You know, I would just go to like a store. I wanted to buy, you know, a CD that would have like what's the if you, there was like a dance party and you wanted to give somebody a CD of all like the best songs right now, like what is that? You chat up the person who's who's going to sell you what is, by the way, not an official CD, right? It's like an underground CD right. because it's not officially allowed to be sold. Um, chatting with someone who's, you know, a, a taxi driver, right? Finding other situations where you could interact with people um, and talk as much as you can, but get like a much more organic conversation that way. So the central limitation, though, is accessibility because I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be as under the radar as possible, um, both for myself and for anybody who would be willing to sort of speak to me. Well, one of my favorite parts of the book is where you're talking about popular culture and pop music. And there's this one section where you're speaking about Black Cats and Andy, like these are very famous Iranian uh, pop singers or pop bands from the 90s, early 2000s. And there's this one part that just really struck me because you're speaking about Andy's song, Dokhtar Iruni, like the Iranian girl, and you're explaining how the, the lyrics paint this picture of Iranian women in general, like the figure of the Iranian girl and how that ties and, and plays into certain stereotypes or notions of national identity. And in the next breath, you then bring up uh, the Frankfurt School theorist Theodore, uh, Theodore Adorno and his manuscript on popular music from 1941 in which he's talking about how pop music really standardize, standardizes the idea of individual identity and, and national identity. So I just thought that was so brilliant how you took this pop culture example and then analyzed it through like the cultural lens or theory of the Frankfurt School. But my question would be, you know, looking at these really popular artists, Andy, Black Cats, when you were in Iran, 
did young Iranians think of these artists as being Iranian or were they considered to be artists who were then sort of traitors or from the diaspora because they had left Iran and, and gone to the U.S.? Well, I never got a, first of all, thank you. That's, that's a great anecdote about somebody who read the book. Um, the, I never got the sense that they were considered, that they were seen in a negative light in, in that sense, like a traitor or anything like that. Um, but they were also distinct, right? So there's a, a period in which obviously soon after the revolution, I mean, music is, music is outlawed at the beginning. And then it's just, it's very, very limited. There's very, very limited um, space for any kind of uh, musical, both production and consumption. Of course, it's still limited to this day, right? Like for instance, women cannot be vocalists. Women can still not be vocalists. Like I talk about a band, Ariane band that emerged sort of in like, the, I think it's like the late nineties, early two thousands that what used women and men, but the women vocalists were sort of just background vocalists, right? They couldn't sing lead but that was like a big deal at the time because it was like oh look women are sort of back in the scene um and this is a country before the revolution that had it's maybe i you can't necessarily say the most popular artists but at least some of its most popular artists were women you have a singer like bubush or haide just like pop staples of pre-revolutionary iran and they still tend to be like popular figures because you know they're these like famed female vocalists of that era. So when you, in like the 80s and 90s, especially when you don't really have a lot of burgeoning musical scene in Iran, um, they relied a lot on these diaspora artists, right? And and they were very popular in the consumption of that music. And there's, I, I don't remember the theorist right now, or I don't remember the author that wrote this, but it's not my, I want to just clarify, this is, this is another author who wrote about this. Um, and it's the author is cited in the book at least. Um, basically talks about how this consumption of this music in and of itself was sort of a form of, I don't know if she calls it resistance or it's more like, it's a way of pushing the limitations that they have, right? Because you're listening to this pop music that's not even allowed to be consumed in the country. But this has evolved over time. Like I said, when you have a period like Khatami in the late 90s and early 2000s, you see the beginnings of uh, the Iranian musical scene inside of Iran really start to uh, flourish. And you get all sorts of genres, right? Which was much less popular. The diaspora sort of had its own just pop music genre. Whereas inside of Iran, when the musical scene starts to evolve, you have rock, heavy metal. Um, in the early 2000s, you have a lot of rap music that becomes very popular. Of course, you still have like the sort of pop um, ballads and melodies and things like that as well. You, later, you see a lot of infusion of sort of traditional vocalists, people like uh, Shajarian, mm -hmm. who then his son, Homoyun Shajarian, uses those traditional styles, but then meshes them with more contemporary styles. Um, and so you get this very diverse musical scene in Iran. And when that happens, I think they start to shift away from the diaspora musicians a little bit more. But what I like saw when I was there just in like the field work and when I would, you know, when you would ask if it was a DJ or if it was somebody who was selling music and it was for, you know, parties that they were having at the time, just things that, you know, you, you consume in passing, uh, not as a, this is not a political statement at all. It's just, what do you listen to when you're at a party? 
then you'd see these sort of songs like like would be playing or they would have like a song if it was at the time popular by black cats or something like that so the diaspora music was still and and i assumed to today that would be the case um i haven't been i haven't my field research ended in 2015 so you know it's now been several years so i don't want to speak to that but um you would assume like if you look at a site like radio javon which is basically like an iTunes type site for, it's like a music, no, it's Spotify. Maybe that's a better equivalent. It's like a musical streaming site, but for um, Iranian and Persian music, uh, they have artists inside of Iran as well as diaspora artists. And they have a lot of like views and listens and all of that from both sides of the spectrum. But I think inside of the country, they're more heavily um, listened to artists inside of Iran because the, musical tastes in the country have evolved probably distinctly than that uh within the diaspora which would make sense i mean like this is the the cultural center is the country itself and so it has a lot more diversity within it and you spoke to so many you know young people when you were there i wonder how they think of their own history and now i'm generalizing but young people are generation said as a group, like, how would they see the revolution? And do they think of their history in terms of this historical rupture of like pre post revolution? Mm. So the, the people that I interviewed, I, I didn't make it to Gen Z um, because I mean, most of the Gen Z was born um, after the 2000s. When I was there, they were far too young to be part of uh, the group that I and I would be fascinated to actually go back to Iran, if it was possible to do that kind of um, field research, because I do think that, and it's not unique to Iran, but that this new generation, Gen Z, is changing things everywhere, right? I mean, that's just sort of the nature of generational change and transition. Whereas I think previous generations, the post-revolutionary generation, which is a lot of the, the subjects that I, I spoke with, I spoke with post-revolution generation um, who are probably now in their like 30s and early 40s um, and and folks who were there before the revolution, right? A slightly older generation, uh, people who 50s and 60s. So Gen Z, uh, as opposed, I think, to the, to the previous generation in Iran, which was more open or more I think strategically thought more in terms of reform, right? Less in terms of revolution, like having another revolution. And if they had grievances and discontent with the system, they thought more in the idea of reform, which is why we saw so much uh, engagement with the political system for so many years after the revolution. This generation, and we can't like draw this conclusion, we can't paint everybody with one brush and draw this conclusion or generalize, but there's at least a significant portion, and we saw this in the protests, in 2022 into 2023, um, that believes that reform is not possible and as such have gone a step further in the way that they protest and the way that they air their grievances. So I'd be very interested in, in really looking at that group distinctly. Um, what, in, what you mentioned though, the before and after the revolution, that's very much of the people that I interviewed, that's very much a language that they would talk about. There was two periods that they would always sort of if you wanted to have this conversation um, that would be talked about in very unique ways. And one was that sort of periodization, right? Before and after the revolution and also the war. 
the war was such a huge thing. I mean, I knew people who were born in like 1986. This is the tail end, the last like two years of the war. You would think they have no recollection of the war. I mean, you were a toddler when the war ended and they were very much like, no, I remember this, this, you know? So, so it was still, the war was also very much, I think, a part of that generation's um, experience right? It, it affected, especially for those who were children during it, it affected their childhoods and they have these like childhood memories from it. Um, and it changed, it literally changed the landscape, right? So many of the murals, if you, if you go anywhere in Iran, this is not just Tehran, this is anywhere in Iran, if you go, you will see uh, street signs, streets named after martyrs of the war, um, murals everywhere, either about the revolution or especially the war. So and that's changed as well over time, right? The amount that you can really allow that, the more history is removed from it, right? The further away we get from that history, the less it resonates with people. But you still see something like that museum in the middle of Tehran. It's like a giant piece of land that's been dedicated to to the war, to the revolution and the war. But I'll tell you, as somebody who visited it, it wasn't, weren't a lot of people there, you know? Like how popular was, this was in 2015. I would not describe it as certainly not like the Louvre, like where you go and you have a lot of people. So, you know, the state can still try to um, use those stories, but how Iranians themselves consume more stories is also very different. And you can see that in the cinema a bit. Yeah, I think the state probably exaggerates the importance of some of those symbols. It's like they play a role in this cultural sense making, as you call it, but they're not the only symbols that matter. And pop culture does matter. Um, my other question would be, like your book really looks at identity as a construct, but of course, you you know, you mentioned that people who identify in certain ways or, or live these identities have a very visceral, a very real experience of it. So I wonder what your prescription would be because identity, it seems to me can have disadvantages and advantages in terms of how you strategize in a political struggle. Um, would you say that national identity in the current context of the protests could maybe serve a sort of political ideal of liberation or would other forms of identity, maybe across class lines or other shared universal experiences, would that be more important? It's a great question. And it's hard for me to answer because on, on the, front of nationalism. Let's say this about nationalism. Nas using nationalist rhetoric can be liberating or extremely dangerous, really depending on who is wielding it and how they're doing it, right? That's very important to say because um, yes, in terms of resistance movements, when you are, you know, the state of India in the 1940s and you're trying to liberate it from a colonial, from British colonialism, then Indian nationalism becomes can become a, a force for resistance. When partition happens, it can become something that's not as good, right? It can create that Indian nationalism can then create violence against other groups. So it, it depends on the situation. It's really dependent on how it, it's used. And it's funny because when you talk about nationalism, I think it's like any other ideology, right? Like this happens a lot with religion. I think when you talk about religion, you'll often get, uh, and I'm not talking about in academia, I'm saying like across the board, when people talk about religion, there's a, there's a sentiment that 
religion is a wildly dangerous thing. Like, look at how many people have been killed in the name of religion. The counter argument to that is that people have been killed in the name of everything, right? Non-religious nationalism is not religion, but in the name of um, certain nationalisms, we've carried out genocide, many atrocities, right? So it's, it's, these are tools in our repertoire that can be, that can be used for liberation, but can then also be used for oppression, right? When you, when you use it as a way to silence minority voices, right? In the case of Iran, if you use it as a way to silence Baha'is, that's a danger of, of nationalism. In some circles, um, the kind of nationalism you see about like Iranian identity can elevate the idea of Iranianness as being tied to like Aryanism and whiteness, right? That carries some dangers within it when it becomes exclusionary of other of other groups, whatever those groups are, whether they're religious minorities, racial minorities, ethnic minorities. Um, so, you know, I would tend towards a in a in a revolutionary movement or in a social movement, especially one that uses discourse like liberation or you know democracy, inclusiveness, human rights, all this very powerful and just ubiquitous discourse. Everybody uses discourse now, right? That's what everybody is claiming to be. Um, but if you're going to use it, then you have to actually execute that in in reality. And that I think, for instance class struggle, I think is very important for that, right? It's one umbrella in which people can really be united across. Um, and that also carries its own dangers, right? As soon as you say class struggle, and then you bring in words like socialism, and then it goes communism, and then people, you know, so what I'm saying, what I'm trying to get at essentially is any of these identifiers, any of these ideological tools any one of them can be used in a way that's potentially good, but also potentially bad. So it's really the people who are are wielding those um, that identity and how they how inclusive they want to be. What I'll say about these protests that we saw in Iran, inside of the country, inside of Iran, is some of the images that I saw that were heartening, at least, where I thought, well, this is hopeful, right? Was images of women with their backs turned, and you would see very different variations of how they were dressed. And that was actually like very intentional and very symbolic, right? A woman in chador, a woman in hijab, a woman in nothing, right? Dressed how she wants to, a t-shirt and pants, holding hands. And that kind of solidarity to me is, is much more positive, right? Because it's creating that larger umbrella. And that's not about nationalism necessarily. It's just about choice. It's about freedom. That's what they're really trying to talk about. These aren't protests that are anti-Islam. They're not anti-hijab. They're anti-compulsory hijab. They're anti-repression. They're anti-authoritarianism, right? And so I think that kind of positive messaging resonates more um, because it's more inclusive. And if you want to be inclusive, I definitely think you have to take class into consideration. I mean, if you want... Um, if you want a successful movement, you probably want to involve the workers of a country because they're the backbone of that country, whatever country it might be. Um, and Iranian workers um, have been organized uh, politically since before the revolution and after the revolution. And in recent months, that just it's a continuity, right? When we saw 
these uh, some attempts at like labor strikes or th these aren't unique. This didn't happen starting in September 2022. This has been happening for years. And remember that like sort of five year ish period where I said you've seen more repression. You see more repression of the labor movement as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question fully because I feel like I'm evading the question just a little bit because it's hard to say, right? It's hard to it's hard to articulate whether something is you know sort of good or bad. It's really the way that it's it's used. But I would urge more in the more inclusive we can be, the more I think that reflects the ethos of the discourse that we hear people use. Right. And if anything, even though the movement can be described as a feminist movement, it's very inclusive because they're not talking about women's rights in terms of it being a zero sum game. It's not women's rights at the expense of, you know, the right of men or anyone else. It's women's rights so that everyone else can have more freedom as well. And Absolutely. it's anti-repression. So it's, you know, repression of all groups and not just specifically Iranians or, or minorities such as Kurds or well, I also want to say since you brought up women's rights, it's also it these are uh, these are conversations that transcend Iran's borders, right? This isn't just happening in Iran. Like you and that's the kind of solidarity that you can see. And when you make it when it becomes nationalist, that's one of the limitations of it, right? When it it's when it's about your borders, then it limits the discourse to your borders. But when you look at it as women's rights, there is no border that it doesn't transcend. Women's rights is an issue everywhere in the world. Women's rights is an issue right now in the United States. Uh, it's a very important issue actually right now in the United States. Despite all of the freedoms that we have, this is a huge issue in the United States because we're seeing those freedoms be stripped away. We're seeing a regression of those things. And so when you can trans, workers' rights transcends borders, right? The, when you can look at these movements, these social movements, and see parallels in other places in the world and build that kind of solidarity, I think those also become, in a very different way, more inclusive and I think more effective. Well, I do have one last question if you have time, if you have a few more minutes. And it's just a, a very, maybe, I don't, I don't know if this will elicit a, a short or a long answer, but what would you change if you had to, or add to your book in light of the current protests because your book does such a good job in giving the historical context to understand the protests but i wonder if there's anything that you would maybe add now oh yeah oh okay so and i think i i touched on this earlier um there's a whole generation that it's now missing right like this and and that generation emerged on the political scene in a very um potent way starting in the protests in September 2022. And it's not to say that they were never on the scene, but not in this fashion, right? And, and you, the saddest thing, the saddest evidence of that is in the people who were killed. When you look at the age of the people who were killed, right? So those are the people protesting. Something else you saw is you saw a lot more women killed because they were the ones out there again, right? So you, I, if I wanted to add a, a chapter and I would love to, it would be to sort of look at this as another, uh, look at this generation as another watershed moment, right? Not not these protests even necessarily, but what these protests represent about a generational shift. Um, and that's where I think the fieldwork in, in Iran would be invaluable because then you could actually be on the ground uh, to see what the, the distinction is between this generation and previous generations. Well, Asal, it was really great to speak to you. And I hope everyone reads your book because even though you know you write it in a somewhat academic context it's not a 
incredibly dense, unreadable academic book. It is very easy to understand and it's incredibly interesting. And you also bring in these amazing historians. You weave that in and I just really loved reading it and I hope that everyone reads it. I don't have a physical copy of it to show it here, but um, I really hope that everyone reads it. And thank, thank you, you for watching the analysis. If you're able to donate to the show and to contribute, you can go to theanalysis.news, hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen, and also get on the mailing list so that you're notified every time a new show drops. Also, please go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis News, and hit like and subscribe. And hopefully, we'll have Asal on again soon to speak about Iran. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and the very generous uh, review of the book. You're welcome. You really deserve it. Thank Take you. Care.